Welcome back to Let's Get Haunted with your hosts, Nat Strawn and Allie. Welcome back, guys, to episode 111 of Let's Get Haunted. Yeah. And if you're new and you are only listening to this episode because you saw the title, maybe you were searching for this topic in Spotify or Apple Podcasts, you should know that we start off every episode with something called Personal Hauntings, where Nat and I talk about haunted shit going on in our personal lives. Now, if you don't want to listen to that because you don't really give a shit, you don't know who we are, that is valid, but you should know that you can skip this intro. Yeah, go down to the show notes right now, expand them. The very first sentence in all caps will say skip to this time to get to the story. So you can go ahead and do that at any time. Yes, that is right. It could say five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes, two minutes. We just don't know. It's not our responsibility. You got to do some work here too. (laughs) We're providing the free content. Now you got to go click on show notes and then skip to whatever that timestamp is. Nat, with that being said, do you have any personal hauntings to share this week let's get this mother crock i just wanted to say thank you guys very much for everyone who's reached out to me about sharing my personal birth story so many of you have commented or sent me nice messages saying that you know you were crying at work or crying in your cubicle or crying on your way to work had to pull over because you were crying at the story (laughs) and um while it wasn't my intention to make you guys all cry i do feel like very appreciative that you're reserving some of those fucks for me yeah absolutely I saw someone comment saying they went through shoulder dystocia and that it was like really important for them to hear somebody else that had gone through it yeah you know it's like one of those crazy things where at the time it's happening you're like this is literally irrelevant like who cares you know (laughs) like this doesn't matter but then I find myself getting choked up or like getting activated or you know I'm still suffering from the trauma from it and it's just so weird how things you don't even think are that important really push you right well you I know? think at the time when you're going through something traumatic it's survival mode right you're nick so it's caging yeah you're just nick caging you're taking meth you're escaping yeah. the nazis you're just like this is what it is I'm in this situation now let me like pull all of my resources right. together to get myself out of it and then once you're out of the situation and you have a breath and you have a breath to reflect you're like holy fuck this is gonna like mess me up for a while that's how I feel like my whole life is gonna be like like I'm gonna be <laughs> 101 years old hopefully older than that like on my death bed and looking back and just being like wow I just took a moment to reflect on these past hundred years and shit was really fucked up I need therapy yeah (laughs) (laughs) well then they can send you a therapist in the old folks home you can work through it and then die peacefully yeah isn't that our goal yes as like a society yeah and then not have to come back as a ghost and keep reliving it. right right well I'd like reincarnation to be a thing but I don't want to be cursed to like wander the halls of an old folks home as a ghost for the rest of my life right yeah that is a nightmare scenario love that for you no hate that for me guys if you are confused about this episode because it's an odd number. Nat has decided to tell me a super, super long episode this week. So we are splitting it into two. Yeah. So this is part one. I do not know what it's about yet, but she texted me and said, be prepared because yeah. it's a crazy haunted roller coaster of a ride. I'm really sorry it's so long, but I just feel like it's so well documented, this story, that you really can't not mention all of the little tidbits, even if they're not that important and you don't spend time on them. I'm going to mention some of the stuff that's not cool. I'm not going to mention some of the stuff that's not cool, but I will mention everything that is cool. Perfect. (laughs) This is one of those stories that it honestly deserves several parts because it is so well documented. It is just one of those iconic you know, haunted, crazy stories. But I just didn't want you guys to know everything because in my experience, the more detail you know about something niche and haunted, the more likely you are to share those niche haunted details in a group setting with people who don't know you and bring shame on yourself. (laughs) So I'm just going to summarize this crazy haunted story for everyone, lest we all look like psychos at parties when we start telling people we listen to and or make this podcast. Yes. Right? Yes. Our story begins in 1930s America. Alyssa, go ahead and describe 1930s America to your best ability. Depression. 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 The roaring 20s were like this crazy time where everyone's like fucking doing coke (laughs) off of mirrors. What are you doing here? I'm here to answer a request. What are you going to do? Tap dance. Tap dance? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's funny. So am I. Are you really? Uh Uh-huh. Oh, 
Oh, that is funny. <laughs> people were building, like the rich people were like building penthouses that had mirrors that you could pull out. In LA, there's some of these like historical buildings that you can go into and they literally have cocaine mirrors that yeah. pull out. Uh, didn't you receive a request for me to do a tap dance? Yeah. And then, you know, the 30s hit and we suddenly have like the Dust Bowl. My friends, as you know, I came out here to see things with my own eyes because I felt that I could learn a lot more by coming out than by just reading blueprints and reports back in Washington. Do you want to summarize a little bit of what the Dust Bowl is for those of us who perhaps have never heard of it? Yeah, my understanding of the Dust Bowl is that in states such as Oklahoma, there was this combination of factors, and it's actually like really controversial in the agricultural community of like what this perfect storm of situations were that happened. I know there's this story that I read about this guy who like predicted the Dust Bowl, but nobody would listen to him. And it had to do with like fallowed land and drought and what's soil diseases fallowed land means that there's nothing planted oh right so when you have stuff planted yeah it holds on to the dirt topsoil yeah topsoil and makes it so that it's this more stable thing there's less dust there's more water you know when you fallow land there's nothing holding this topsoil down totally yeah so that's my understanding of the dust bowl is basically it was crazy just a bunch of fallowed land with dust everywhere people had to migrate in mass like people Mm -hmm. living in extreme poverty like making shanty towns yeah and having to move to other states from states like Oklahoma to places for example like California right with nothing with exactly. absolutely nothing. Yeah, they couldn't even afford a car. They're walking yes. on foot. So the Dust Bowl is what we call the Southern Plains region of the United States during the 1930s, which were severely drought stricken and they had dust storms. Drought was caused by several cultural, political, and economic factors, including overplowing, which loosened the topsoil in agricultural states, which was blown away and swept across this region from Texas to Nebraska. The dust storms during this time period were so intense that people and livestock were killed because crops failed across the entire region. It really comes down to three problems. The first is the immediate present. To keep people going who've lost their crops and lost their livestock. The second is to keep them going over the winter until next year when we hope we'll have more rain. The economic impact of the Great Depression, which was in full swing, drove many farming families out on a desperate migration, like Alyssa said, to search for work and better living conditions, especially to places out west like California. Mm -hmm. The third problem relates to the future. Not only the future of North Dakota, but the future of a good many other states. It relates to working out a plan of cooperation with nature instead of going along with what we've been doing in the past, trying to buck nature. So basically, after the Civil War, the U.S. is trying to heal and they're trying to grow westward. So they decide to incentivize farming in this Great Plains area. They're not really thinking it through. They're just like, okay, we have a bunch of shit here. The the Great Plains, it's like literally giant plains, like giant grass fields. Why don't we just tell everyone to like go fuck with it, make a bunch of corn or whatever. They'll make it into usable land for us, you know? The Homestead Act of 1862 gave settlers 160 acres of public land if they would just farm it. Soon after the Kincaid Act of 1904 and the enlarged Homestead Act of 1909 led to a massive influx of new farmers across the Great Plains, but they're new. These people don't know what they're doing. They, they don't just have want a lot the 160 acres mm-hmm. and the money. If the government called you today and was like, hey, I'm going to give you 160 acres of land for free if you'll just make some corn, you'd be like, well, fuck, I don't know how to make corn, but it can't be that hard, right? Like we did science, like you plant a seed, you put water I've on it. i gardened before. It right. grows, right? Like done, cool, who cares? They were trying to make a quick buck because the depression 
construction was going on. But they ended up ruining our earth and now they have to go to California to reinvent themselves. It's a story as old as time. And I'm glad you brought this up because during our last presidential election, there was an asshat running for the Democratic Party who had this horrible quote that basically said, like, farmers are fucking stupid. You don't want a farmer as a president. They're fucking uneducated dumbasses. I just want to point out that that could not be further from the truth. I don't know why this stigma exists around, quote unquote, rural folk. Like, that's some of the smartest fucking people that are the backbone of this country. Farmers and farm workers. Without them, we have no food supply. And farming is difficult. It's not like growing, you know, your little plants inside your apartment, which I do as well. So, you know, no shade. But that is like a completely different level this is on a mass than scale. supporting. Yeah. Like it, it's crazy how much work and money goes into sustaining a farm in a way where like dust bowls don't happen right. and food can actually be produced and a country can be self-sufficient. So mm-hmm. I'm glad you're bringing this up. On May 11th of 1934, there was a massive dust storm that was two miles high. It traveled 2,000 miles to the East Coast, which blotted out monuments like the Statue of Liberty in the U.S. Capitol. Wow. So even though this shit was happening in a place where the West and the East Coast were like, who gives a fuck? They're just like rural farmers, like you said. Right. It ended up being a lot of fucks to them because it went and fucking covered their Statue of Liberty. They're like, wow, that's the only reason why I moved here is to have like these beautiful landmarks that I can fucking jack off to from my <laughs> penthouse window. And now these uh, rural folk are ruining my view. Do not take away my perfect Statue jack of Liberty. Jack off zone. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Natalia is showing me a series of black and white photos. These are three photos. If you guys would like to see these photos, you can go to at Let's Get Haunted on Instagram to follow along with this episode on the photo dump. Wow, these are great photos. So the first one shows two guys walking down a dirt road. They have all of their possessions in tiny little like knapsacks or suitcases. They're walking down the road and there's this billboard by them that says next time try the train and relax and it's like these people have lost everything yeah these these types of historical photos photos, yeah where there's this juxtaposition is beautiful okay the second photo shows a tiny farmhouse completely covered in dust complete like a mound of dirt and dust up to the windows like you can't open the door like snow like a snowstorm but it's dust and then the third photo shows yeah these crazy crazy It looks like low clouds, but it's not. It's Mm -hmm. high dust. Yeah. The year is 1934. The Depression, the Dust Bowl is going on. There's a 15-year-old Kentucky native, Ada Kathleen Maddox, and she's pregnant. As the youngest of five in a highly religious 1930s Kentucky working-class family, Kathleen was often singled out as being a wild child. She was known to sneak out and go to parties with her older brother, Luther Maddox. In a 1971 interview, Kathleen recalled, quote, I guess I had a tendency to be a little wild, the way the kids will, end quote. Extended family members report that Kathleen became a runaway and she started work as a sex worker. Kathleen denied these rumors and she argues that she was, quote, just a dumb kid who gave birth out of wedlock, end quote. Kathleen's religious mother allegedly sent her to Cincinnati to have the baby away from prying neighbors who might judge them. And while in Cincinnati, Kathleen met William Manson and married him in 1934 when she was six months pregnant to give her child a proper name. When she was only 15 years old, she gave birth at Cincinnati General Hospital to her first son. Records show that the official name given on the birth certificate was No Name Maddox. Kathleen defended this decision and said she wanted to wait until her mother could meet her in Cincinnati to name the child, as she believed this teen pregnancy out of wedlock had hurt her relationship with her religious mother. Mm. Quote, I figured I'd already hurt her pretty bad, so I wanted to let her name the baby, you see. So she named him after my father. End quote. The child was renamed Charles Miller Manson. Oh my goodness. I did not see this twist coming. You didn't see this coming? No. Do you have any idea what's coming? Well, I'm assuming this is the story of Charles Manson, the famous murderer. (gasps) Yeah. Cult leader, murderer. Dude, this fucking shit goes so deep. Like, I'm telling you all the way to the back walls. I did not see us starting at the Dust Bowl and ending with Charles Manson. (laughs) This is what you listen to LGH for. (laughs) Maddox was in and out of legal trouble after she had her child. She continued to live this wild child lifestyle. She left her son with her parents while she went out to go party. 
She was taken into custody at 16 for hitchhiking and left her four-year-old Manson at home with her parents. When Manson was only six years old, Maddox and her brother Luther were arrested for a hasty and unrehearsed robbery of a gas station using a broken ketchup bottle as a weapon. While mom was in jail, Manson switched hands again and was sent to live with his aunt and uncle. When mom was released from prison after three years, she and Manson lived together in a very chaotic lifestyle across a variety of hotel rooms for several years. Manson became a petty criminal in his childhood, learning from his mother, stealing, and also skipping school. In an effort to reform him, his mother sent him to a Catholic school for delinquents when he was 12 years old. He escaped this place many times. But the end of his reformation came in 1951 when he stole a car and robbed a gas station, which sent him to a maximum security prison. In 1955, Manson was out of prison and married his first wife, 15-year-old Rosalie Willis. They had a son that they named Charles Manson Jr. Wait, how old was he when he married the 15-year-old? Oh, we got to do this. Yeah. Okay, so it was 1955. Okay. He was born in 1934. 1955. Minus 1934. 34. So he was 21. <sighs> married a 15-year-old. Why is every haunting <laughs> we ever talk about always has some element of like... Someone marrying someone way, 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 way too young. Yeah, that's maybe that's like a new theory. That's what causes them. Hey, look, are you a person looking to marry someone who is a prepubescent prepubescent person? Guess what? The likelihood of you becoming a murderer is very high. high. So don't do it. (laughs) Don't do it because it's also the wrong thing to do. But also if you could become a murderer, you could become a murderer. Right. You're on your path. Marrying a 15 year old when you're 21 is a gateway drug to murder. (laughs) Two years later, Manson was back in federal prison after stealing a car in violation of his probation to leave with his young wife for California. Interestingly enough, his mom reportedly moved to California as well to be closer to him and his young wife and their new son while he was serving his time. Maddox, the mother, and Willis, the new wife, reportedly lived together for a time. Though Maddox's unstable lifestyle often is blamed for Manson's violence that he developed, Maddox claims that she believes it was the opposite. She says, quote, I think that made him overconfident. He never had to take a fall, not till he was a grown man. Everything was just handed to him, I admit, end quote. I mean, that is the great question, right? What makes a murderer a murderer? Is it too much nurture? Is it not enough nurture? I know. Is it something they're born with, with like some sort of like incorrect faulty wiring in the brain or is like a murderer born or is a murderer made i don't know i hope one day we can hack into the brains of murderers and find out and implant a little computer chip in the brain that prevents that from happening in manson's own autobiography entitled manson in his own words manson wrote of his mother quote other writers have portrayed mom as a teenage whore because she happened to be the mother of charles manson she's downgraded I prefer to think of her as a flower child in the 30s, 30 years ahead of her times, end quote. Manson related his mom to a flower child of the 60s as her reasons for leaving home, he said, were no different than the kids he knew in the 1960s who chose to be homeless instead of being with their conservative parents. Charles's relationship with his father and his biological father are very complicated as well. He basically didn't have a relationship at all with his father as his mother divorced him a year after. Because remember, she was like six months pregnant when they got married and it right. was not his biological son. She just wanted his name, which I, I don't know the story behind that. Odd, yeah. Yeah. Who's to say? Who's to say? So his biological father was supposedly in and out of his life until he died of cancer in 1954. But it's debated on heavily around Manson, his mother and the people who knew them, what their relationship was like. Everyone has a different story to tell. Okay, so that's Manson's childhood. Long story short, he's constantly in and out of jail. He's stealing, forging, getting into fights. He also throws tantrums as a child. He's often kicked out of different organizations he tries to enter. People think that he's unstable and he's unsafe. I also want to add that Manson was married twice before the age of 30. He had one child from each marriage, so he has two children, and both of them were named Charles, which to me is fucking weird. Narcissism, for sure. Those marriages both fell apart during Manson's in and outs of prison. But it's weird. It's kind of like he's like, okay, first one didn't work with Charles. Let's start over. 
And this is a new Charles. Yeah. Yeah. Well, did you ever hear about that guy who was the murderer? Oh, my God. Why am I blanking? And maybe the Golden State Killers Mm. dad who like I'm pretty sure the Golden State Killers dad and somebody correct me in the comments because it's like 90 percent chance I'm wrong um, (laughs) had had two families, one in Germany, one in California. And each of his children were named the exact same thing. And so it was like a secret family. So that way, when he went to visit a the duplicate. secret family, he didn't have to memorize new names because they were all named the same thing as his like family family. It feels like that is just not the most important thing to worry about when you have a secret family. It's yeah, like not yeah. knowing their names. You know, you <laughs> think that there would be a lot of other planning that goes into right. that. Hey, well, here's an idea. Just don't have a secret family and then you don't have to worry about it. Right. That's like people who cheat on their like spouses or significant others and they're like, oh, God, I have to keep all these lies straight. Woe is me. It's like, hey, here's an idea. Don't just do don't it. Don't do it. Just don't yeah. do it. Now you have so much less stress. Right. Manson's in prison and while he's in prison, he's he lives his best life. Like, I think it's safe to say that Manson was living his best life in prison. He's thriving. He's thriving. I don't know if you guys knew this about me, but I was a cult leader for some time. And I often said during that time that prison would only help me. I do believe I used to tell Alyssa this all the time. I do recall this time in your life. Yes. And I would say that, you know, it would just be structured. Like, you have to go to bed. You have to wake up at the same time every day. You're forced to do this. All you can do for fun is, like, learn things in the library. And obviously, that's like a gross oversimplification and incarceration is like probably not going to live your best life for the majority of people. But this is an entertainment podcast and I did say those things in the past. And also if you're a psychopath, maybe that's what you need. Yes. So are we learning that Natalia is a psychopath? I don't know guys. In 10 years, is she going to snap and start a cult and murder someone in the desert? And now we can use this podcast as evidence. I feel like I am on the edge of feralty, but it wouldn't be murder. It would just be like me like having a bunch of horses on a prairie yeah like you base jumping off of a cliff wearing cute outfits yeah yeah. and posting it to social media that's a different kind of psychopathy (laughs) yeah prison changes manson it allows him to become a leader and cultivate his persona and his cultural values he becomes radicalized in prison we might say in today's terms he reads several books while in prison. One of those is called How to Win Friends and Influence People. And Why is that in the prison library? <sighs> That's a great question. He takes that to heart. In prison, he also learned to play the guitar. He got pretty good at it. Even though he left school at a pretty early age, he professed admiration for this science fiction book about like a science fiction utopia called Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein. During that time behind bars, he really got into that book. He really got into guitar. He really got into that other book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He would eventually use those skills and that knowledge to do exactly what the book says, win friends and influence people. While in prison in 1961, Manson listed his religion as Scientology. Interesting. Yeah. In 1961, there's a report that was issued by the federal prison that he was in that says, quote, he appears to have developed a certain amount of insight into his problems through his study of this discipline, Scientology, end quote. I don't know if you guys know about Scientology, but it's supposed to be about like helping you with your problems. But then like the deeper into it, the crazier it gets. So it's interesting that the prison was like, it's really helping him like this therapy, the Scientology. Yeah. Well, didn't Scientology start off as like a science fiction novel? The, the then, creator was yeah. a, a science fiction writer. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder if it sounds like he was into science fiction. Right. right? So maybe he just started reading all these books and was like, oh, I really relate to this. And yeah. oh, wow. He Here's this science fiction based religion. This resonates with me. Oh, my God. That could happen to me. You guys, am I at risk for this? <laughs> I, I you could might see be. that. You might I could be. be like, oh, Lord of the Rings has a religion. Count me <laughs> in. In 1967, Charles is released from prison after serving a small sentence for check forgery fraud. After this, he drifts his way to California, hitchhiking and scamming like, you know, Joanne the scammer. He finds his way to Berkeley in Northern California, and then he finds his way into San Francisco's Highton Ashbury neighborhood, which at this time was the center of hippie counterculture. Have you ever been to Berkeley or San Francisco? I have been to San Francisco. It's definitely a, a totally different vibe. I would say even Santa Cruz is like a very different vibe from Southern California and 
places like New York. Berkeley is very much like Birkenstock capital of yes. the world. Like a yes. lot of granola. Granola. Like people that go to Berkeley. They're famously they're, very progressive. They're constantly protesting stuff. Like if you go there on any given day, there's going to be like 20 students in Birkenstocks holding up signs. And you're like, what are you protesting? And they're like, I don't know. So <laughs> it's a really prestigious school. I'm being yes. silly. No, it's we're being silly. Very, they're very, very prestigious. It's hard to get into. Everyone's Absolutely. very, very well educated. You see Berkeley. That's and that's probably why they protest so much because they're like, I've learned everything that's going on and right. I have to protest. The, I have too many things to protest <laughs> to the point where I don't remember which one I'm protesting, but I know it's important. At 33 in this subculture, because remember, this is in the middle of the free love movement in San Francisco. This is like the heart of a hippie counterculture. He rolls in here at 33. And he's a little bit older than most of the people who are kind of hanging out. Just imagine it's like people in the park smoking a joint or like tripping acid yeah. or like playing guitar. These people are looking for a new way of life. A lot of them are coming from places like Kentucky where they're like, hey, my parents don't think it's cool that I'm like leaving my child to go rob a gas station <laughs> with a broken ketchup bottle. That's not fair. I'm going to go be a hippie now. Right, right. He's a little older. He has this way about him that's really charismatic. People are sort of drawn to him. He has a magnetic energy, probably from what he learned and how to win friends and influence people. And one of the notes that people say about him is he always told people what they wanted to hear, you know, playing to people's egos. Well, he read that book, right? He knows how to kind of manipulate yourself, ingratiate yourself into different friend groups. I, I assume that was the reason for reading that book. So if you're just telling people what they want to hear, that's a good way to develop a lot of superficial friendships. Right. You know, his followers were also mainly gorgeous, hot girls. Yeah. Yeah. That's another thing about the hippie movement is like a lot of really hot people that just wanted to be naked. Right. Which like slay, you know, <laughs> like more power to you. Yeah. And especially I think that type of lifestyle really appeals to people in their teens and early to mid 20s because like you're hot. You don't have many responsibilities. Mm -hmm. You like haven't really had to pay a lot of taxes yet. Like, yeah, you are just kind of like fresh out of perhaps your like family home. People like tend to take in hot, beautiful women and like help them. A yeah. Lot yeah. More than women who aren't hot and beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I would agree. So I think that makes sense is that he's attracting this type of group like free love free spirit in a utopia situation that I would fucking love to do that unfortunately I'm old and jaded so <laughs> I I cannot biographer Jeff Ginn says that quote height Ashbury is overflowing with children who don't know where they're going what they're gonna do what they're gonna eat next but they've come in search of some guru to be able to tell them what to do and how to make their lives better and that is who Manson preys on end quote he also says that pretty much every single line he used like almost word for word was ripped out of that how to win friends and influence people interesting yeah i wonder if that author feels bad oh. that would suck like you write this book and you think it's great like it's gonna help people it's gonna, it's help, gonna help, people. help you win friends and influence people yeah. but then it just turns out that charles manson used it to be a terrible person that would suck it's not that author's fault but right. that would that would be like a shitty feeling. That's trauma. Eventually, Manson takes his following, which is mainly girls, on the road, and he transforms his teachings into this traveling commune that's in this school bus that he painted black. Everything we have to do is is to get to the truth has to be sneaky. It seems a shame to sneak to get to the truth to make the truth such an evil, dirty, old, nasty thing. You gotta sneak to get to the truth. The truth is condemned. The truth is in the gas chamber. The truth has been in your stockyards, your slaughterhouses. The truth has been in your reservations, building your railroads, emptying your garbage. The truth is in your ghettos, in your jails, in your young love, not in your courts or your Congress where the old sit judgment on the young. What the hell do the old know about the young? They put a picture of old George on the dollar and tell you that he's your father, worship him. Look at the madness that goes on. You can't prove anything that happened yesterday. Now is the only thing that's real. All the while, he's manipulating these women using LSD. You can try to prove that... 
Columbus sailed on an ocean, but it's not the same ocean. It's a different ocean. It's a different world. Emotional manipulation techniques. Every day, every reality is a new reality. Every new reality is a is a new horizon. Making his followers believe he's this messianic figure. A brand new experience of living. By the time Manson eventually settles with his followers at the Spawn Movie Ranch northwest of LA, he has them all addicted to his bullshit. Every man judges himself. He knows what he is. You know what you are as I know what I am. We all know what we are. Nobody can stand in judgment. They can play like they're standing in judgment. They can play like they stand in judgment and take you off and control the masses with your human body. And they can lock you up in penitentiaries and cages and put you on crosses as they did in the past. But it doesn't amount to anything. What they're doing is they're only persecuting a reflection of themselves. They're persecuting what they can't stand to look at in themselves. The truth. They can't stand to look at the truth in themselves. They persecute themselves. They're butchering themselves every time they go on the freeway. They hate themselves. Look at the signs. Stop. Go. Turn here. Turn there. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't. You can't. You can't. This is illegal. That's illegal. Everything's illegal. The police used to watch over the people. Now they're watching the people. The president doesn't represent the people. He should be on the roadside picking up his children, but he isn't. He's in the White House sending them off to war. And you're saying, I have to pay for this again and again and again. I've got to pay for your sins. How many times have I got to pay for your sins? I'm getting tired. I'm getting tired. One of the things we have to think about is that this was the height of the free love movement. And he was really cool and he was fun. And that was the subculture of the time. Because remember, the free love movement was all about going against the idea that you needed to be in this conservative familial relationship in order to be loved. And also probably you were giving like the biggest middle finger to your parents back in Kentucky. Right. You know, by like going on a bus with a bunch of other girls and hooking up with this 33-year-old man. Who plays the guitar (laughs) and has two children named after himself. In Centennial Media's magazine, Cults, Gurus, and Grifters, Manson is described as, quote, short, skinny, semi-literate, and a lifelong petty criminal who possessed an undeniable charisma, particularly for young girls on the fringes of society, outcasts and runaways who often had family troubles and suffered low self-esteem, end quote. So you might be asking yourself now, okay, I think I got like a picture of what's going on. Who the fuck is in this family? Like who, I I just have to know who they are. Guess what? I'm going to tell you who they are. So the family is calling themselves the family and they're operating as this communal religious cult studying Manson's religious teachings based off of science fiction, the occult and fringe psychology. There's a lot of partying, sex, drugs, orgies happening. He's giving them LSD, having sex with these people, looking deeply into their eyes, telling them that they're important, telling them that they're loved. In the meantime, he sort of whispers, hey, there's an apocalyptic race war that's coming between the government and black citizens, and it's going to devastate the United States. It's going to leave a vacuum for authority. And then that vacuum of power is going to be filled by us, the Manson family. Manson's like hinting that to them. I think that's why my comments earlier about Berkeley are very jaded and like old person jokes. Because living in Los Angeles, there are new age mystic grifters everywhere. And I think while a lot of these hippie movements are like super well-intentioned and like valid, it creates this opportunity for these weird fucking grifters to slowly come in and take over the movement for their own personal gain. Like it starts off as this really good, like women should have access to birth control and shouldn't have to get married if they don't want to. And then this like psychopathic leader comes in and is like, oh, but also... There's a there's a war coming. Oh, but also like 
let me give you this LSD and like confuse you and talk about this and that. I don't know. So I, for me, it's like I can't separate the hippie movement from these like people that took advantage of it. It's hard. It's like a very difficult thing to navigate. Right. I think because I think too, it's kind of like all born from chaos, right? Like you're trying to create something new and then there's some people who are just drawn to chaos because they're chaotic. Right. And it's not the good kind of chaos. Manson preaches that this race war is going to be started by this group called the Black Panthers, who he hated. Manson insisted that he had proof that this race war was coming. And he boasted that he had inside knowledge of this from this song called Helter Skelter off the Beatles' White Album. This song, Helter Skelter, he said, alludes to war. Have you ever heard this song? I don't know that I really have. I am not a huge Beatles fan, which I know is very taboo. I I like some of their like slower songs, but I'm not super into the psychedelic songs. Well, listen to this for a moment because I want you to just kind of hear this. So I'm not going to play this on the podcast because copyright, yeah, yeah. <laughs> copy strike on that one. But what I will do is I'll read the lyrics and I just played it for Alyssa. Alyssa, just in that short clip that I played for you, what was like the vibe you got from that song? It was a rock song. Um, maybe just because it's coming over um, like shitty cell phone speakers. So maybe like I can't really get the full vibe, but it reminded me a lot of The Who. Um, it just is like a rock and roll song. This song is written about an amusement park, but Charles insists that it's about this forthcoming war. It says, when I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide, where I stop and I turn and I go for a ride, till I get to the bottom and I see you again. Do, don't you want me to love you? I'm coming down fast, but I'm miles above you. Tell me, tell me, tell me, come on, tell me the answer. Well, you may be a lover, but you ain't no dancer. Helter Skelter, Helter Skelter, Helter Skelter. Will you, won't you, want me to make you? I'm coming down fast, but don't let me break you. Tell me, tell me, tell me the answer. You may be a lover, but you ain't no dancer. Look out, Helter Skelter, Helter Skelter, Helter Skelter. Look out, because here she comes. When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide, and I stop, and I turn around, and I go for a ride. And I get to the bottom, I see you again, yeah, yeah? Well, do you? Don't you want me to make you? I'm coming down fast, but don't let me break you. Tell me, tell me, tell me your answer. You may be a lover, but you ain't no dancer. Look out. Helter Skelter. Look out. Helter Skelter. And he got race war from that? Yeah, I don't know. I was reading it to you because I was hoping you could be like, oh, yeah, well, um, I learned in like modern literature that yeah. like this is actually an allegory for da da da. But like, I don't I don't see it. But I guess that's the beauty of LSD, right? Like right. you see patterns and meaning where there really is none. Yeah. I mean, maybe the code was really deep. So they're basically he took from that whole song how they're saying like look out helter skelter he's like they're not telling me what helter skelter is but i can deduce that this is about a coming race war that's going to be started by the black panthers and against the united states government yeah he's really drawn some conclusions where i don't think there are any he's innovating materials that are not meant to be innovated yeah, yeah. in 1969 we are at the summer of love this is the height of counterculture and the free love movement Manson tells his followers that if black Americans didn't already start Helter Skelter, the family should help to move it along. Like, I'm realizing I really didn't understand anything about Charles Manson. I, like, associated him because he was associated with the hippie movement and free love, and that's really all I knew. I had no idea there was, like, a racial component because part of the hippie movement was, like, we're all equal right. and, like, activism and equality and, like, reparations are good. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting, again, to see someone take a well-intentioned movement and just use it for their own, like, fucked up ideology. Yeah. I mean, he preyed on these people, too. It's, like, fucked. Yeah. I feel like that's how most cult leaders are, though. Uh, yeah, absolutely. They find vulnerable people looking for answers and exploit them. Yeah, like this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Donate to us, guys. 
the bus had the words Hollywood Productions written on the side because he always wanted to be a star. They traveled throughout California, and he begins approaching more young women in places like San Francisco's Golden Gate Park, as well as Venice Beach in Los Angeles. He's presenting himself as this religious figure, and he's urging these grifters, or these women who are on the fringes of society, to follow him and surrender their identities to him completely. Some of his followers are 23-year-old Mary Brunner, who was targeted for her house and her income. Brunner had moved to California to work as a librarian, but she was turned to petty crime, and she started supporting Manson financially while he recruits more followers. That's how, like, in love these people were with him, or how emotionally controlled they are. 14-year-old Diane Lake, who's Manson's youngest known follower, was only 14 when she met Manson. And what's fucked up about her situation is that her family allowed this. Her family had moved from Minnesota to California to be a part of this counterculture hippie scene. And they were living in this free love commune called Wavy Gravy's Hog Farm. Lake's parents were allowing her to take LSD and have sex while she was 14. And they eventually told them that like she has to leave because she's jailbait, because she's like sexually active and she's 14. So you guys have to leave. Okay, bitches. Her parents find Manson and they approve of their daughter's sexual relationship with Manson and allow her to join the family. She eventually writes this tell-all book in 2017, which is part memoir, and it's like this true crime narrative as well, called Member of the Family, My Story of Charles Manson, Life Inside the Cult, and the Darkness that Ended the 60s which is where some of the info on the family comes from in this episode. I'm about to read a passage which is about a 14-year-old having sex with a 33-year-old. Trigger warning. Yeah, trigger warning. And very... trigger warning, that's called rape. That It's yeah. not consensual. This has made me uncomfortable to read this, but I think that we need to hear this so we can understand how Manson worked. From her book, Lake says of Manson that he was magnetic about her first time with him. Quote, He took his time to explore my body. He avoided the places that made me purr until I could barely stand it. After a few minutes, he put himself inside of me while staring into my eyes. He was tender as he held me up to meet his deep thrust. When he finished, he sighed. I exhaled and realized I was hooked. I was in love with him, end quote. Um, Oh, well, yeah. She's cute. She's just like a cute little kid with freckles. She looks like a child because she is. Yeah, Yeah. she's a child. And then here's some of his followers. Uh, Bald people. So they shaved their heads Mm -hmm. um, later on. But I'll show you more photos where they didn't have their heads shaved. As his follower count grows, he moves to L.A., And he's trying to make these dreams of Hollywood stardom happen. And the whole time he's preaching that he's this Masonic figure and that he's going to use his music in order to help spread truth. Because like, you know, as you found out when we were on this acid trip that the Beatles are actually talking to us, I can also do that if I could just make my music so that people could hear it. We could like spread this ideology and everyone's like, oh, that's a great idea. So he's trying to make it in L.A. and he's using his female followers as like bait, essentially. Like, I didn't know this, but apparently back in the 1960s, it was really easy to mingle with like Hollywood royalty and celebrities. Like they would hang out with these like fringe society sort of people who were not living luxurious lifestyles at all. And it was really easy for those people to mingle. So people were more laid back in Hollywood at this time. It wasn't as hard to meet famous people. So like runaway hippies were mingling with Hollywood royalty and it was not uncommon at all. I think a lot of it had to do with drug use as well because a lot of the celebrities would get their drugs from people who were living alternative lifestyles at the time. That makes sense. By some miracle, Charles Manson is beginning to actually make his way around Hollywood. He becomes friends with a lot of producers and actors, including this actor named Al Lewis, who quoted remembering Manson as a nice guy, and he even had Manson babysit his kids on several occasions. Universal producer Gary Stromberg also granted Manson a recording session, but when Manson showed up, he was really unprepared, unreliable, and untalented, which really fucked with him. I think he like understood that he fucked up his chance, so he had to try even harder 
later to get into Hollywood. And he begins cultivating this relationship with none other than Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. Did you know this? Really? No, I did not know that. This is fucking crazy, Alyssa. So he somehow gets in with Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. And by somehow, I mean, he allows his female cult members to sleep with Brian Wilson. And Brian Wilson basically picks up this hitchhiking family cult of like hot girls and this weird Manson guy because he has his own issues going on. He was really insecure about his own music. Brian Wilson wanted to be artistic and knew like the Beatles and he was constantly compared to them throughout his career because he came from this like Americana conservative like beach boy like you know sound and the Beatles were like new and hot and he wanted to be respected like that. Manson was like really able to manipulate him by telling him everything he wanted to hear like oh yeah like we're gonna change you you know you're so talented you're such a great musician you're better than the Beatles like I'm gonna help you get out you know you hanging out with me and like these hippies is gonna change your image etc etc he manipulated Brian Wilson so well that throughout 1968 Wilson allowed Manson and the family to live in his house which was on Sunset Boulevard And he even lent Manson hundreds of thousands of dollars to help him record his own album in exchange for sex with his female followers. Well, that's pretty fucked up. It's weird because you would think someone as famous as Brian Wilson wouldn't need that. Like he could just have sex with other people. But I think it really did have to do with the emotional component of it. Like I said, he was a little insecure about his music. And so Manson's like, no, man, don't listen to them. Like, listen to me and have sex with these girls. Which sounds better, being sad about your music or being happy and having sex with these girls? Easy solution. Yeah, like when I think of the Beatles, I think of sex symbols. And when I think of the Beach Boys, I think of just like old people surfing music. (laughs) (laughs) True. Diane Lake, that 14-year-old, she did a bunch of interviews for her biography, and one of them was with Rolling Stone. She told Rolling Stone about living in Brian Wilson's house that she, quote, just fell in love with the house and its grounds, including the sprawling estate complete with a pool, a swing, and a really fancy log cabin. It was a far cry from a remote, crumbling movie set where they were living. It was really just a handful of us and Charlie that lived there, she said, noting that unlike some accounts, the entire family didn't move in with Wilson. Half had gone to Mendocino, which was another hippie enclave in Northern California, end quote. During this time when Manson and these like random girls are living at his sprawling estate, because Brian Wilson's mega fucking famous at this time, right? Right, right. Super successful. Super successful. Super famous. Wilson's manager is like, no, this is fucking weird. And like, y- like he's making so much money off of Brian Wilson that I, I'm i assuming he's like, these people are trying to take a cut somehow. And like, I need to cut this shit off because I'm the only one who can manipulate Brian Wilson from <laughs> his insecurities. In an article for Oxygen.com under their true crime buzz, there is an article written August 16th of 2020 that says, Were Charles Manson and the Beach Boys' Dennis Wilson really friends? By Ted Quarterman. It says, The rock star first met Manson in the spring of 1968 after Wilson had picked up two girls hitchhiking and brought them back to his home in the Pacific Palisades. According to the docuseries, the girls were Manson family members Ella Jo Bailey and Patricia Krenwinkel. The girls lingered around the famous drummer's mansion not long before Wilson returned home one evening to find Manson in his driveway. Fellow Beach Boy Mike Love writes in his 2016 memoir, Good Vibrations, that Manson knelt down and kissed Wilson's feet upon their first meeting. Quote, I think the two must have hit it off. End quote. Former Manson girl Diane Lake said in the docuseries, Quote, Charlie was teaching Dennis how to play the guitar, and Dennis welcomed Charlie and us girls into his home, and we would take his Rolls Royce and go dumpster diving, end quote. Another Manson girl, Catherine Scher, described the first time she met Manson at Wilson's estate. Scher told the producers of Helter Skelter that Manson first approached her wearing what appeared to be a silk robe and matching harem pants, which she later discovered were fashioned out of Wilson's bedsheets. Ew. Manson's hippie lifestyle and socially conscious lyrics appealed to Wilson, who was interested in the grittier music of the era's progressive rock scene. Quote, Wilson's music, the music he likes to write best, is really serious. 
end quote. Wilson's brother, Carl Wilson, told Rolling Stone in 1971, quote, Wilson had the most nervous energy, end quote. Embracing the California counterculture even more than his bandmates, Wilson regularly invited Manson and his harem to perform for guests at star-studded house parties. Music producers Greg Jacobson and Terry Melcher were among many celebrities who were introduced to Manson at Wilson's home. Quote, Dennis used to call Charlie the wizard, Jacobson recalled in Helter Skelter. He really thought that Charlie was magical, end quote. But while Wilson seemed to be enthralled with Manson's musical talent, many of his guests were not so impressed. Quote, I just thought he was a seedy little character. Johnny Eccles, the lead guitarist of the band Love, said of Manson in the new docuseries. The weirdest thing was, first the parties were in the guest house, and Manson and his crew would be there. And then it kind of flipped itself, and Dennis moved those people into his house, and he stayed in the guest house on his own property. End quote. Having formed their own record label, Brother Records, only a year prior, the Beach Boys were already looking to include new talent in their recording lineup by the time Manson had befriended Wilson in the summer of 1968. That year, Dennis invited Manson to record a demo at his brother Brian Wilson's in-home recording studio. That's when the relationship began to sour. A couple of Manson's girls who tagged along took the opportunity to swim naked in Brian Wilson's pool, much to the chagrin of Brian's wife, Marilyn. Worse yet, Manson was an intractable recording artist with no experience performing in a studio, which, which incurred the wrath of the Beach Boys audio engineer, Stephen Desper. Charlie was not going to be produced, Desper can be heard saying on a tape recording in the docuseries. He had no idea what recording sessions were about or how to make records. He took it all very personally, and he was not a professional artist. After an argument in the studio, Manson left Brian Wilson's home in a fit of frustration, empty-handed. That's not to say that Manson and his family did not reap more than their fair share of benefits while riding Wilson's coattails. Plying Wilson with drugs, sex, and musical inspiration during their unofficial residency at his mansion, the Manson family helped themselves to the famous musician's assets in kind. A Rolling Stone interview with several members of the Beach Boys revealed that Wilson's expenses from Manson included a $1,200 bill from the Altadena Dairy Company, costing about $9,000 in today's currency, and a lofty sum in penicillin treatments to quell an outbreak of gonorrhea among the members of the family. Oh, wow. Wilson estimated that he spent about $100,000, roughly $740,800 today, on gifts for the Manson family over the course of their brief friendship. Running out of patience and generosity, Wilson began to distance himself from the parasitic Manson crew. Quote, he didn't want people to take advantage of him. Nobody does. And it became more and more apparent that that's what was going on, Jacobson observed of his close friend in the docuseries. He said, Greg, can you get me out of here? So literally, I hired a moving company to take his personal stuff out of there, and the whole idea was not to let the girls and Charlie know. End quote. So he has their family evicted in August of 1968, and that's when they end up going to the Spawn Movie Ranch, which is this weird site in California that's for filming westerns. I'll show you some pictures of it. It's like dilapidated. So Nat is showing me a series of black and white photos. The first one just shows a man leaning against a that's like Manson. a Model T. That's Manson. Yeah, and that's the bus. You can't see it very well. It's like Oh god. Yeah, it's grainy. It's an old photo. Oh yeah, it's just a black bus and he's leaning against the front. Then the second picture shows, yeah, it looks like a movie set. Um like picture in a stereotypical old western saloon. Um that's what this looks like. And then there's like cement slabs. There's the interior of different homes. But it's like shanty, right? It's not like a place where the windows are, can close and the door can lock. Right, it's because like, it's a set. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like a functioning home. There's like a mattress on the ground and like the windows don't shut. Yeah. yeah it's like looks like a rundown, dilapidated ghost town. Ghost town, essentially. He is able to live on this movie ranch, which is like, 
not great living conditions at all. Like people are, you know, sleeping on the ground on the floor, but I don't think they care because I think there's a lot of drugs involved at this time. But he's able to live there because he's trading sexual favors of his female followers to the ranch's owner in exchange for free room and board. Even during this time, even after he gets evicted with his family to go live on this ranch, Wilson still continues to promote Manson's music. And he even is convinced to record one of Manson's original songs called Cease to Exist, which they eventually do. Here is Charles Manson's song. Have you ever heard this? I have heard some of Charles Manson's songs, but I wouldn't be able to tell you like what the name is or how it sounds. Good, because then I would think you were a freak. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty girl, pretty, pretty girl. Cease to exist. Just come and say you love me. Give up your work. Come on, you can't be. I'm your kind, oh, your kind, I can see. Walk on, walk on. I love you, pretty girl. My life is yours, and you can have my world. Never had a lesson I ever learned. But I know we all get our turn. I love you. Never learn not to love you. Submission is a gift. Gone. Give it to your brother. Love and understanding is for one another. I'm your kind. I'm your kind. I'm your brother. What do you think of that? I think it's boring, but it's not horrible. Um, I think it definitely sounds like a, a product of its time. I think the only thing that makes it decent is whoever's playing the electric guitar in the background, which is clearly not Manson. But I think, you know, there's nothing special about it. It doesn't really stand out. It just sounds like lots of other songs that were made during that time. But it's, again, it's not like awful. Yeah. I mean, he did get some criticism about the song from Brian Wilson, which he did not react to very well. Wilson was like, hey, I like what you've done here. I like the idea. I want to record this. And I like you as a person. I'm going to give you some tips and advice on your music career. Like, I think this is what you should do with your sound. Like, I think this is what you should do, whatever. And Manson freaks out. He, like, does not respond well to criticism at all. That was, like, the first time that Brian Wilson saw a side of Manson that he had never seen before. And it kind of scared him a little bit. And he's like, oh, now I'm beginning to see that this person is not exactly who I thought he was. I thought he was like this free love hippie who's easygoing and everything's cool. And he's just like, chill, like listen to my music and play the guitar. But now I see that he's like, actually has a motive and is attached to a narrative that he wants to happen. Um, And I think Brian Wilson was like, this is fucking nuts. Yeah. But he also thinks that this is the perfect song for the Beach Boys to record. <laughs> so he starts working on recording with the Beach Boys. In the meantime, he introduces Manson to this famous record producer, Terry Melcher, who is the son of Doris Day, who was a huge movie actress at the time. Terry is really not sure about Manson, but he doesn't want to burn this bridge, probably because his relationship with Brian is important to him. 
So he stays friendly with the family. And people differ on that. Some people say, oh, no, 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 they were really friends and he liked him. He just didn't want to produce his record because he didn't think he was any good. Other people think like, no, 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 he didn't like him. He thought he was crazy. And he was just like being cool with him because he was scared or he didn't want to ruin the relationship he had with his other famous people. Depending on who you ask, it's different. At this time, Terry Melcher was dating this up and coming Hollywood star named Candace Bergen, who was renting a house at 10050 Cielo Drive. Both Brian Wilson and Manson had frequently gone to this house and visited Bergen and Melcher, and Manson would come to associate that house with fame and power. The relationship between Brian Wilson and Manson begins to go south because Melcher decides he's not going to sign Manson, and Manson's getting really impatient. Manson also begins mistreating Wilson, and Wilson's like, what the fuck? I'm famous. Who the fuck are you? Bye. Wilson ends up giving Manson criticism, like I said, on his music, which he's not vibing with. This girl, Lake, that wrote the biography said that she was in this room with all of them, and then Manson, like with him and the Beach Boys, and then Manson asked her to leave, and she said that there was this crazy commotion. She doesn't know what happened, but she thinks that Manson pulled a buck knife out on the Beach Boys. Wow. And so they were like, okay, you blew your chances. Right. Like, get the fuck out. And that was the beginning of the end for the Manson family. Also, Manson's temper was getting out of control. He would go on these racist rants about this race war that was coming. And that was not a good look. I mean, you can't be with that guy who brings the person ranting about the upcoming race war to the party. So eventually Melcher's like, no, 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 not not absolutely not. We're not fucking with this guy. And he denies him the record deal full out. And according to one of the Beach Boys, the member Mike Love, Terry Melcher's mom, Doris Day, was the one who told them to like cut ties with Manson because she said their friendship was scaring her. And she convinced Melcher and Bergen to actually move out of that house that they were in in January of 1969 because she was like, "You, I don't want him to even know where you guys where you live. live. Yeah, that's and smart. eventually would save their lives. This just shows how important good parents are, like familial figures or influences are, you know, like their lives were spared because his mom had this feeling about it. And, you know, it's just it's fucking crazy. It makes me be like, I like have to be a good mom. Right, right. It's terrifying. Yeah, because you could either have a child that you grow up to save and becomes a like super wealthy um, recording artist, or you can raise a child that grows up to be a weird racist murderer. Don't even, don't even. So by the end of this summer, he's not signing the record deal. And, you know, he like he's been asked to cut ties with Melcher. They've moved out of that house. Like it's starting to look like his luck is turning. And at this time, Cease to Exist was released as a Beach Boys single in December of 1968. But the title had been changed to Never Learn Not to Love. Have you ever heard this? No, I don't think so. I'll play you a small clip. I don't think we can play this on the podcast. But if you guys want to listen to it, it's called Never Learn Not to Love by the Beach Boys. And I'm just going to play it for Allie so she can understand the story here. What do you think of that? Excessive tambourine. Sounded <laughs> like Santa's sleigh coming down onto the roof. Yeah, it's interesting because in Manson's version, you hear those lyrics and they kind of sound creepy. It's like, hey, pretty girl, cease to exist. Yeah. Like, like, give your everything to me. Like, give your soul over to me until you're no longer there, essentially. And then the Beach Boys version is like... Hey, pretty girl. Yeah. Come on, Santa sleigh. Yeah. We'll bring you presents and joy and build a snowman today. Yeah, I feel like Manson's version was more like bluesy and brooding and folksy. And then the Beach Boys like did a commercialized version, which is actually very fitting because like I said, when I think of the Beatles, I think of like a more psychedelic sex symbol band. And then when I think of the Beach Boys, I really do think of like this clean cut. Mm-hmm. Um, Play it at the family barbecue. Yes, exactly. Like, I wish they all could be California yeah. girls. Like, but I mean, I know the Beatles started off with like, you know, a very clean cut um, vibe to them as well. But they successfully transitioned to psychedelic. I can see how the Beach Boys were trying to do that. Like you said, Brian Wilson really wanted to be taken seriously at the level of Beatles mania. But, you know, if you want to be taken seriously, maybe you shouldn't have like a grifter in your uh, home and take his weird song and add sleigh bells over it. (laughs) In actually a pretty savage move, after they release this single, they don't 
give Manson a songwriting credit on the song. Oh, wow. And in response to that snub, Manson allegedly threatened to kill Brian Wilson. After the song's release in 1968, Manson sent Wilson a single bullet with a threatening message attached. Quote, I gave Wilson a bullet because he changed the words to my song. End quote. Manson recalled in a 1993 interview with Diane Sawyer, Afterwards, Wilson's friends and fellow musician Van Dyke Parks claimed to have witnessed Wilson viciously assault Manson in response to the threat, according to The Guardian. Wilson had officially cut ties with the Manson family, but he was still apprehensive about their unpredictable behavior. Quote, Dennis was aware enough of what Charlie was capable of, which is why he slept with a gun under his pillow. Journalist David Dalton said in Helter Skelter. I mean, if it were anyone else, I would say, like, that's really fucked up. If this person essentially did all the legwork for you of coming up with this concept and writing these lyrics and coming up with this whole song, and then you record it and don't give them any credit or money or whatever, I I would say that's really fucked up. And, like, that is a tale as old as time. Independent artists get fucked over all the time. However, in this case, it's literally uh, a racist uh, rapist. So I will say... I don't feel sorry for Charles Manson. Yeah, and I have to assume that after what we're about to talk about goes down, Brian Wilson tries to distance himself from Charles Manson and probably doesn't tell us all the details of their relationship and what they were doing and what, you know, Manson had him doing and maybe didn't even want it to be knowledge that he had, like, worked with Manson at all, you know? So Manson knows that Melcher and Bergen had moved out of that 10050 Cello Drive house, but he never forgot the location and he never forgot the record snub that had happened there. And in the August of 1969, the house was now being rented by filmmaker Roman Polanski and his wife, actress Sharon Tate. Isn't Roman Polanski also a rapist? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah, real fun story we got going here. Just wait. Just wait, guys. Buckle up. Get excited. If you like what you've heard now, boy. Boy, do I have another grifter for you. And now we are at the part of the episode where we are going to take a break until next week. That's right. This is part one. If you didn't read it in the title, I'm just breaking that news to you right now. Breaking news. This is the end of part one. Next week, we will have part two, and then we'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming. BRB, you got to go punch Michael Bloomberg in the face. Bye. Bye. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.